My name's Howard Hu. I'm a physician trained in internal medicine and occupational medicine and epidemiology. Uh, my current position is a professor and chairman of the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California. And today you testified in the first day of the second phase of the uh, fluoride lawsuit. Could you briefly summarize some of the main points of what you were called in to testify about? Sure. Um, my testimony, which was elicited by the plaintiff's counsel and then cross-examined by the defense counsel, related to the research that's been done on fluoride and neurobehavioral development uh, conducted by my research group, uh, which was started uh, some years ago uh, and that resulted in some of the initial uh, epidemiologic findings that used a certain sort of uh, rigorous methodology to try to understand impacts. Uh, and I was also questioned about uh, some of the research my colleagues have done uh, in Canada uh, and also some scientists in Spain. From your, your professional and personal perspective, do you feel your testimony went well today? Do you, I mean, you're stating of the facts and the court hearing them, the, the judge's curiosity, those sort of things? Absolutely. So I think um, the judge is real smart and he is trying to understand the science. Um, both sides of the litigation were uh, quite rigorous in their, uh, in their examination of my testimony. Uh, and I was glad that we could get into the facts uh, and the science and the interpretation of the science. Uh, and I have some confidence that the judge will uh, assimilate uh, this information and come up uh, with the best opinion at the end. In your professional opinion, is it fair to say that the conclusions of the National Toxicology Program, that there is an association between higher fluoride exposure and lower IQ in children, is accurate? Uh, yes. Um, I would say that, in my view, uh, the evidence is quite uh, persuasive, uh, that there is a negative impact of fluoride exposure on the neurodevelopment of children particularly um, the research that's been coming out in prenatal exposure. This topic that we're discussing and the, that's at stake here is one of those sort of things that gets labeled conspiracy theory. You know, that if somebody talks, like for example, me as a journalist, you see there's no, media, there's no media here, there's been no mainstream media reporting, I'm an independent journalist, I've followed this topic for about 10, 12 years now, so I care deeply about it, but if you take this story into any mainstream publication, they typically laugh you out of the room, and I'm sure there's um, similar things maybe in the scientific realm. We're living in a time where people are being told there's an anti-science mentality, that we don't want to listen to the scientists, and, and yet we're dealing with this situation I just outlined, that the, following the science leads to a conclusion that we're told is only crazy people believe. Could you reflect on that a minute? Sure. Well, th the um, story about fluoride is a complicated one uh, because it's been controversial for decades. And I would freely admit that, um, you know, 15 years ago, I was not particularly cognizant of the uh, potential health effects of fluoride 
and I was aware of some of the controversy surrounding it, but my general impression as a scientist was that there wasn't very much actual scientific evidence to back up some of the assertions that were being made. Uh, but this is why, you know, it's so, so important with all the scientific studies that are being published for scientific bodies at times to take stock, try to figure out, well, what is the totality of the scientific literature telling us? And that's exactly what happened in 2006. A working committee of the National Research Council looked at the totality of evidence and said, well, we can't come to any conclusions, but we're kind of worried and we need more science. And that's precisely when our research team said, oh, you know, we're actually in a really good position to study this. Let's study this. And that was in about 2010. Uh, and then flash forward seven years, we got the research funding, we conducted the study, we published our initial findings, and that's how science progresses, uh, is that you have fits and starts, but there are times when a critical mass of evidence develops, uh, and even if it's not yet conclusive, uh, it then stimulates scientists to go at it further. And of course, this is an issue that has huge implications given the, the highly prevalent practice of fluoridation of water. Um, and that, you know, I'm just glad that in this country we have the freedom as well as the support from the public through taxpayer dollars and the National Institutes of Health to support this kind of research. Now, of course, you know, the research always gets spun and uh, we are living a time, uh, particularly with the COVID pandemic, where there's science and the results uh, can, you know, there's the, you have to have a healthy debate about what it means, but then for it to flow into these conspiracy theories is very unhealthy, it's very unfortunate, and um, I just hope that there are still outlets for scientific communication that are persuasive enough to keep the ball moving forward and affecting policy in the right direction. So obviously scientists are human beings and are fallible like everybody else, and politics plays a role even, we, we see in some cases, even if we would like it not to, in the world of science, and I think we're seeing that in the fluoride uh, lawsuit. Um, how can, like myself and say the audience of generally lay people, uh, how can we sort of, I guess, walk through that world where scientists are capable of being pulled to one side or the other, uh, people can be influenced by money or maybe uh, concerns about their career and things like that. How can we sort of maintain a belief in science in that world and like you said, not fall into maybe beliefs that aren't based in fact, knowing that, pe that scientists can be corrupted like anybody else? That's a great question. I think, you know, previously, there, it, at least in my view, it's a little bit easier because some, sometimes it's like industry, which clearly has an, in, an interest in continuing to make a product or something has a special interest and will promote quote-unquote science to back up their views. In this case, the irony of it is that it's really one branch of public health, which is environmental health, in tension with, a, with another branch of public health, dental public health. Uh, and that's what makes it um, especially difficult, 
I think, for the public to understand. You know, we've got scientists on both sides who are very credible, you know, saying different things and having different opinions. I think, you know, I think the one thing I would say is that this is an issue that certainly has to be seen in the light of the expertise that's important to understand the issue at hand. The issue at hand is not whether fluoride is good for your teeth. There's no question about it. It's great for your teeth. The issue at hand is whether fluoride is not so good for the developing brain. And that cannot be addressed by using dental science. You have to use neurotoxicology, neuroepidemiology, and the kinds of science that I think you know, my colleagues and others are trying to bear to this problem. And, you know, that I think is the solution. And then you need these uber scientific bodies, as is happening with the National Toxicology Program, to weigh the evidence and then come to a conclusion. And I think that's, you know, for, as a scientist, I see that as the way forward. Uh, but it's, it's a complicated thing to understand for the public. Uh, so I, you know, the best I can do is say, science is not just one monolithic thing. There's various disciplines and expertise in science that needs to be brought to bear to define the issue at hand. And that's where I would encourage the public to try to understand, you know, what kinds of science is important and then try to understand what it's telling us. Since 2012, the Conscious Resistance Network has been an independent media organization focused on empowering individuals through education, philosophy, health, and community organizing. We work to create a world where corporate and state power do not rule over the lives of free human beings. Our motto is leading by example and helping others in their pursuit of freedom. Visit theconsciousresistance.com to find our articles, documentaries, interviews, podcasts, books, and more. Remember, you are powerful, you are beautiful, and you are free.